Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by the one, the only, the amazing, the talented, my dear friend and CHR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? Shana tova, Leslie. Shana tova. And likewise to you, my friend. May all of our listeners have a happy 5780. And for all of our other observant Jewish listeners, well over the fast with next week's Yom Kippur. But we're not here to talk about Jewish celebrations, are we, Leslie? I mean, we could be if we wanted to, but... Yeah, that's a different podcast. Well, let's get into this week's headlines. Over at Netflix, Stranger Things has been renewed for a fourth season as creators Matt and Ross Duffer have signed what I'm told is a nine-figure overall deal to continue doing the show and as well as develop new film and TV projects for the streamer. I had to look it up to figure out if Matt and Ross were actually the Duffer Brothers' names. They are. They are. Yes. <laughs> Elsewhere, Ava DuVernay will exec produce an American Civil War drama pilot called DMZ for HBO Max that is based on the DC comic of the same name. Eliza Schlesinger is creating a sketch comedy series for Netflix. I like Eliza Schlesinger. The end. Over at HBO, there's a major, major change behind the scenes. My dear colleague, the amazing Nancy Lesser, is leaving after an beyond impressive 35-year run in the PR department that saw her help launch the premium cable network into scripted originals. When I think of HBO, I think of Nancy Lesser. The amount of times that we have worked so closely together over my career, which is, is spanning 10 years reporting now, she set the bar for how great PR can be. And... When you look at consumer PR and trade PR, she is the, the person behind a lot of this model. And it's just it's, it's a shame what, what they're doing over there in this big reorganization behind the scenes, because she's one of one of, if not the very best in this industry. It's it's a little inside baseball on the phrase end of an era here. But without any question, trust us, this is truly within our particular world, the end of an era. Yeah, truly. Over at Freeform, meanwhile, Pretty Little Liars, The Perfectionists, the sort of spinoff kind of gobbledygook piece together. They attached Pretty Little Liars to a book that the same author wrote and made it into the same universe. Yeah, that's been canceled after one season. To me, it, it's a show of how much Freeform's brand has changed since Pretty Little Liars, the original, became its flagship show. So now with things like Grownish and The Bold Type, they have a new brand and Pretty Little Liars isn't part of that anymore. Uh, and I had completely forgotten that this was a show that premiered and existed. So, oh well. Over at AMC, they have picked up two new series, a courtroom thriller titled 61st Street from Peter Moffat and Michael B. Jordan, as well as a hour-long comedy called Kevin Can Bleep Himself. You can decide what he can do to himself from Lodge 49 <laughs> writer Valerie Armstrong and executive producer Rashida Jones. Speaking of Lodge 49 writer Valerie Armstrong, or at least of Lodge 49, seriously, AMC, give me a third season of Lodge 49, please. Thank you. Yeah, lots of things happening at AMC. Of course, they, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they pushed out David Madden as Sarah Barnett continued her big rise through the ranks over there. So she now oversees IFC, AMC, BBC America. They're still uh, searching for a new programming uh, person. But these two shows were both developed um, by Madden under AMC's script to series model. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what becomes of AMC in, in the future. And this also gives us a, a good opportunity to plug next week's podcast when we will be joined in the showrunner spotlight by the Walking Dead chief content officer, Scott Gimple. 
heaven knows he knows what's happening at AMC better than most people. I would dare say he is their most important producer. And he's, you know, as as the, the overlord of one of the biggest franchises on TV. Yeah. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Getting started, four has become the new six in terms of how long some of these shows are running. When you look at what's happening at Netflix, Dear White People has been renewed for a fourth and final season. 13 Reasons Why has been renewed for a fourth and final season. Glow has been renewed for a fourth and final season. The Ranch is ending after four seasons. Elsewhere in the TV landscape, TBS and TNT announced this week that Claws is ending after its fourth and final season. The Detour ended after four. Mr. Robot over at USA Network ended after four. Preacher at AMC ended after four. Amazon's The Man in the High Castle. Spoiler alert, it's ending after four. Dan, this is kind of a new era that we're in, in this peak TV climate where, you know, on a broadcast stage, you know, when you look at the original model, it used to be when you sign on for a pilot for a broadcast show, the contract is for six seasons. This is a a, a moment of the industry where we're, we're, we are starting to see that shift a lot, especially on, on streaming. And you're going to give the kids a lot of the practical reasons for this. The thing I find at least interesting or hard to discuss, and as always, this is the case with Netflix, is that I don't necessarily feel as if it's the same reason why all of these shows are ending after four. You know, Dear White People, Justin Simeon said from the beginning it was a four-season show. Uh, You know, first season, freshman year, second season, sophomore year, you can tell where that's going. So that was very clearly a four-season show. 13 Reasons Why somehow became a four-season show. Really, it should have been a one-season show. And after the third season, which I could not even make it through two episodes of, it will be a two and, you know, one-fifth season show for me. And so it's a different thing. I don't know where Glow fits into this. This was a show that at one point was extremely heavily promoted, extremely hype-driven. Still a critical player. Totally still a critical player. I I don't get the impression that was a show that was designed from the beginning as a four-season show, but thanks to not knowing what anything does on Netflix, I don't know if it's... You know, if, if it's it could be that no one watches that show. I don't know. I Dear white people, I somehow suspect it really does have a small audience. I, you know, I just accept that. And so it goes. Great show. People should watch it. But we've got Stranger Things just renewed for a fourth season, as you said. And I and there's rumors that that may go five seasons. It maybe you know, now that they have the duffers under a rich overall deal, maybe they'll push it more. But this is also Stranger Things is also a show that takes two years between seasons. So look at it that way. I mean, so season, what was it? Season three came out this year. So maybe you'll get season four in 2021. Yeah, that would be one where it would seem to me it would go as long as the Duffers wanted it to go because... But it's also something you need to do and (laughs) and film quickly because those kids are growing up very quickly. There are ways of working around it. They could start putting time between the seasons so that we don't have to notice that they're going through puberty and becoming larger and all of that. But it's Or they could bring in a bunch of new kids and have it become more of an anthology that's set in one really messed up city. I think they could probably leave Hawkins at this point, and I think they're planning on it. it's, It's sort of disheartening because there is something to be said for shows that go... 10 seasons, 12 seasons, 15 seasons. You should definitely check out our interview from last week with Steve Levitan talking about when he knew that it was 
time to end Modern Family, a show with an insanely long run that no Netflix show will ever approach because that's simply not the way they do business. No, Grace and Frankie is ending after seven seasons. In terms of episode count, it'll be Netflix's longest running original scripted show. It's also worth noting that they don't own it. That's a show that's produced by Skydance. So Netflix pays a licensing fee. Orange is a New Black ran for seven seasons too. Also a licensed show from Lionsgate TV, meaning it was expensive for them to buy. But looking at why a lot of these shows are ending after four, you know, look, we don't know a whole lot, obviously. We, we say this, it feels like we say this once once a podcast. We should have like a pre-recorded line of dialogue. Netflix doesn't release ratings. We don't really know. But, you know, what we do know is that Netflix looks at a cost plus, well, that's a really inside baseball term, but Netflix looks at, they, they weigh whether or not another season of a show is of value to, to keeping subscribers and bringing in new ones, or if that money that they would spend on season five of Glow is better spent on another original series that would bring in a larger audience. That would be a bit of a bigger draw. Think of it like, should we do season five of Glow or is there some big IP out there or the next show from, you know, some super ginormous showrunner that we're going to go bid on? You know, that's how they look at their these renewals. The other piece of it is as shows age, they get more expensive to make. So when you look at Netflix deals, you know, you can see season one, you'll get a certain fee and that's for the, the producers and whoever has, you know, there's upfront payments on all these shows and the cast will, you know, will get raises and, you know, everything goes up as you would expect it to. And by the time you get to four, there is a large leap between four and five. So in terms of fi the financials, if I'm making season five of Glow, they own Glow, but that doesn't mean that it's still cheap for them to make. They still have to pay Genji Cohan and the rest of the producers on that. So the financial step between a, a, fifth, a fourth season and a fifth season is a large one. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing a lot of these end after four. That and, you know, obviously we don't know the ratings, but diminishing returns, diminishing value, they care most about subscribers. So when their subscriber numbers take it, you know, hit, hit the tank, which they did recently, they had their first down period, I think in ever maybe, they need to evaluate what they're doing. And I think that's why you're, you're starting to see announcements like BoJack ending with six, Glow ending with four. I mean, you know, in this landscape where Netflix is competing with more and more people for, you know, there's obviously this arms race for talent and projects. Now you've got Apple bidding, HBO Max bidding, Disney Plus, Peacock, Hulu, plus HBO, Showtime, Amazon, you know, the streamers, the premium cable networks are all aggressively looking for top content that could draw eyeballs and help them cut through and win over the subscriber dollar because that's where we are. That's the landscape now in this in this streaming era. So it's interesting, though, because it was only three or four or five years ago that that was not what Netflix's big pitch was. Netflix's big pitch was come. We won't interfere with you. We'll let your show run. That was that was how they were attracting people. And now as and now you things... hold your breath to see if you get if you do get a fourth season or if you you're one of them, you know, the increasing number of one and dones that they're doing, which is so odd. And I, you know, I just hope that everyone gets whatever opportunity they want to end their stories. And fans of the OA already know as of now that one is not getting to end its story on its own terms. Uh, and that's a show where. It actually had things to resolve. I don't know that Glow, for example, yes, I would like the creators of Glow to be able to end the show how they want, but if the show 
had ended after the third season, there weren't mysteries that I needed resolved. So it, it becomes yeah, it's not a serialized show in that regard, with, you know, like a deep mythology. Exactly. They definitely the third season of Glow set itself up for a fourth season. And so, yes, I want to see that fourth season. But it's good that Mr. Robot got to end with Sam Esmail deciding how he wanted it to end. It's not good and not ideal that the detour ended its fourth season on a very big cliffhanger type thing. It's it's not good that Santa Clarita Diet ended its third season on a huge cliffhanger. It's uh, it's not great for audiences when the people don't get the chance to end the story. And a lot of OA fans, the line they keep using is, wouldn't the show have more value if people down the road were able to find it and go, well, I know at least it tells the story it was trying to tell. So I assume that this is all in the calculus that we don't know, because yeah, but as you may have heard, Netflix does not release ratings information. And, and but that's also the same issue that a lot of broadcast networks are facing, too. I mean, there are a number of broadcast shows in the past couple of years that ended their seasons on cliffhangers and then got canceled. And there's no end. I mean, the one that's still, you know, we still talk about this a lot, you know, between my Dodger therapy group of friends. But we talk about pitch a lot because, you know, look, as as a fan of baseball and obviously women in sports, that was a show that ended its first season with a horrible message that women can't play baseball. They can't compete on that level and they'll get hurt. And then they fall in love with their catcher. It's a garbage ending. And, you know, anyone who is associated with that show will will freely admit that that finale knowing that that was that they weren't going to come back that that's not what they would have done it's a terrible message to send and when the rug gets pulled out and there's no season two you know it just becomes this this vat of of programming that just sits there because it's not something you can sell as like a closed-ended story and for netflix it's damaging to them too especially in this this climate where library content is so in demand like you know you know when you look at at seinfeld it's 200 plus episodes, 200 episodes of Friends, you know, three, you know, 300 of Big Bang Theory, and it tells a massive story. And then you need that library content to stock your shelves and be the, you know, basically the, the, the mattress pad of your streaming service, right? That's a terrible analogy, but you get what I'm going for. <laughs> like, you know, Peacock, there's a reason that they bid on and, and won The Office because that's your, that's your staple. Like we have this, we have the office. Disney Plus has Marvel and Star Wars and and Pixar and 600 episodes of The Simpsons and and Netflix. Once they lose these library titles, and yes, they just bought Seinfeld for an ungodly amount, so they have you know 70 ish episodes of Orange Is the New Black, and they'll have 70 ish episodes of of Grace and Frankie. But then you have you know a handful of seasons of the OA that tells an incomplete story. And a handful of episodes of Glow, that, you know, now that they know it's a final season, will will be a complete story. But this isn't exactly library content the way that we're that we've been talking about, like a Friends and a Seinfeld and a Big Bang. So, yeah, it, it's it's damaging for a lot of people, not just not just lovers of television, but also the business model too. Well, that feels like a good opportunity for us to move on to our second topic. Number two. We had several options for this week's uh, second segment. We decided to go with not exactly a what the bleep is up with question mark segment, but still what the bleep is up with TNT, TBS, HBO, HBO Max, and what all of their brands do or do not mean and what they all mean relative to what they meant 
two days ago. Uh, honestly, it's a very strange thing. You described it in our notes as musical chairs, and I think brand-wise, it kind of is. So this week we had HBO Max announcing that Sesame Street is moving from HBO to the streamer, uh, that being HBO Max, for a five-season order. And I'm... they'll do spin-offs and offshoots, and there's a library deal there as well. Ugh, so much pandering to Elmo. It's really... <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with the whole thing. <laughs> anyway, and over at TBS, uh, what once used to be the comedy hub of this particular world, they announced their first straight-to-series order for a drama that was obliterated from the creators of Cobra Kai, including my old college classmate, uh, Josh Heald. So this was their first straight-to-series order for a drama, and it's like, okay, now Obliterated will be joining Snowpiercer, which was just moved from TNT to TBS a couple months ago. In May, and, yeah. And we were like, ooh, okay, that means the TVNT is going to be something different and TBS is going to be drama and comedy, but... But, spoiler alert, Snowpiercer is moving back to TNT after a brief detour at TBS. Not because to be confused with the detour, which aired which on TBS for and, four seasons and was, and was canceled. canceled. Yeah, if, if this if this segment feels a little wonky, it's because what's happening at these networks is beyond wonky. And, and you know, we try to get an exec. That's still something we're working on to, you know, so, to get some clarity here. Hopefully, maybe next week. We don't know. We'll see what happens. But, you know, the rumor going around is that these networks are going to change what they are. So, TBS, if you look, they used to have some of these comedic, unscripted game shows, Joker's Wild, and I, I can't remember, there was another one, but, you know, those both moved to TNT. So you've got half hour, like, re, you know, reality game shows that are now on a drama-focused network, and then your drama-focused programming was moving to TBS, which now with Obliterated, which there's a, a ton of jokes that we can make about TNT and TBS and, and Obliterated, but, you know, TBS now is going to be is that the general entertainment network because they've got repeats of big bang theory which as part of this that big you know multi-million dollar deal will continue to remain on tbs for syndication and then tnt was going to drop you know they've got animal kingdom and and one or two other originals it, you know that that roster has is slowly been dwindling down so it, you know the other rumor is that the, you know that these networks were going to get out of originals and you were going to see what scripted they have go to HBO Max, which makes complete sense. Like, look, you're doing a reboot of Snowpiercer, which is a very, very cool movie. It doesn't necessarily scream, you know, procedural family drama of T of what TNT's brand, at least the brand of a year ago or a few months ago was. It screams HBO Max. Well, if anything screams HBO Max, I'm in fact trying to avoid screaming HBO Max as much as humanly possible, especially well, but in, it in makes sense situations. On that. But it makes <laughs> sense on that platform. And, you know, look, this is, you know, this is where we cue, you know, the, the Kiefer Sutherland sound effect. But it feels like Snowpiercer has become the new designated survivor. This is a show that has had two showrunners, two directors, has been on the same network now twice, has already been detoured at a five month detour at TBS. Don't forget it's already it was... renewed for season two. No one's seen it. It's not premiering until spring 2020. They first put it in development at TNT in 2016. Like, I, I don't care how good or bad this show is because the behind the scenes of it is so much more compelling already. It is definitely a show that is practically begging for every train-related pun you could put in a lead, whether it's a train wreck, whether it's referencing the number of times that this particular train has gone off of the tracks. Uh, 
It's yeah. left the station, but we have no idea where it's going or who's on board. And it's still just so baffling because the two announcements of the drama pickup to TBS and then the one drama that was on TBS leaving Moving. TBS and going back came within minutes like two, of each yeah, other. Yeah, like two hours. And, and the quote that came, like, I'm going to read this quote or at least try to make my way through it. This is the quote that came from TBS and TNT about Snowpiercer's move. And this is from Kevin Riley who oversees all things TBS, TNT, and oversees, uh, and True TV, and oversees content for HBO Max. Quote, we've had the unique opportunity to more thoroughly test and explore where the show will best perform while we are still adding dramas to TBS, such as Obliterated. After further research and consideration, we've decided to keep Snowpiercer on TNT. Now that we've seen this incredible post-apocalyptic sci-fi series in its entirety and better understand the audience this show will appeal to, we're confident it will perform strongest on TNT. This is a coded way of saying we've never before had a show that we've had entirely in the can and hasn't premiered yet and had let's say six to 12 months to overthink the process that we're doing entirely in the public eye because we keep making these announcements for no reason whatsoever they did not need to announce that snowpiercer was moving from tnt to tbs a solid eight months before that thing and premiered. they made the announcement with zero context and zero executives talking about it like these are networks that are at a turning point and nobody knows what the hell they're doing whether they're internally or from our vantage point either. Because I, you know, look, we're writing these stories. I can't explain it. I don't know why they're doing this stuff. We're trying to get an exec. <sighs> so Kevin Riley or Brett Weitz, if you're listening, come on down to top five. Seriously, we won't be mean, but we may ask several different times, huh? And why? And please explain. But, you know, seem like fair, reasonable questions to me. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, and we'll only torment you with one or two train sound effects. <sighs> but you know what actually is definitely on TBS, Leslie. Big Bang Theory? No. Baseball! There we are. That sounds like a transition for our next topic. Number three. Batting third. See what I did there, Dan? Let's take a look at the postseason baseball, which is off and running. The wild card games are over. We are now firmly in the division series territory. As we record this, it's Thursday morning. The Dodgers play the Nationals tonight. I am trying my best to leave early. Maybe watch the games on TV. If I can get tickets, maybe I'll go to the game or two. But, you know, look, this isn't a segment where I, where I, I gush about the Dodgers and, and the fact that your defending World Series champion Boston Red Sox didn't make the playoffs. Also, we need to circle back on that bet that we had I, earlier. This anytime you want me wearing my Dodgers shirt, I will happily right, wear my may, Fernando maybe for, shirt maybe into the Maybe for our year-end thing we can we'll, we'll, we'll do that again but, uh, i am enthusiastically rooting for the dodgers for the next few weeks leslie this yeah. causes me no pain oh, let me have my win dan i may need it fine I'm, I'm i'm cheering with you is what i'm saying but in a larger sense yes you've got teams from some of the biggest markets in baseball the yankees the astros all all in there you know oakland got uh, bounced out last night that was uh, a bummer i was kind of rooting for them so we could keep seeing the lonely island guys do the uh the bash brother reenactments which is a great special if you're into that sort of thing but the bigger part for us on this podcast anyway is look sports remains the must-have piece of programming for linear networks because why well they are DVR proof. You have to watch live. That's why you're seeing these multi-million dollar contracts to get the to get football and wrestling. Like wrestling is all over the place. 
you, you know, Fox is making a big bet. You know, T, I think, what, what is it, TBS or TNT, one of the other ones? Or USA is, you know, USA continues to have wrestling. So, I mean, that's why you're seeing a lot of these, you know, the emphasis on, on sports on, on a network like Fox. Yes, it used to be that uh, at, at the TCA press tour, we'd get a wrestling panel, you know, every few years and it would confuse people. But we've started getting wrestling panels on the semi-regular and there's a large contingent of the TCA, including regular listener uh, Chris Hayner, who uh, Hi, Chris. is always very excited when we have panels for wrestling-based things. And I'm always confused, but I'm also always amused by how excited the people who are actually into it are as to whether or not wrestling counts as a sport. That's something else. It definitely, in some cases, though, is live and definitely athletics are involved. I'm not touching the the real or not. I Well, this is not about realness. It's just about how you define sports. But definitely, it is an athletic endeavor. I, I mean. know I couldn't do any of that stuff. Oh, well, th that's not the... <laughs> That's not. There are a lot of things I am unable to do, Leslie. I, I can still hit opposite field, though. I, you know. So, but uh, anyway. But look, this is a short segment. But that's why we're going to talk about about baseball. It gives us a reason to, for me to, to to cross my fingers and toes that the Dodgers will make it all the way. And you know. And if you're you know paying attention to these games, or if you're not, we have another fun showrunner spotlight coming up next. But Major League Baseball and the networks that air at TBS, Fox has the World Series. They want. The, the teams from the biggest media cities to advance. So Dodgers Yankees, you know, rematch would be be great, not just because of that rivalry from decades of baseball, but because those are two major, major, major media markets. Yeah. So there's so there's the dream matchup, which involves the Dodgers and the Yankees, but there still does remain the possibility that it could be a a Tampa, Tampa Bay, St. Louis World Series, a St. Louis Minnesota World Series. For the record, it, it's. <laughs> For the record, I think that several of those World Series might be interesting. On the other hand, I assure you that is not what Fox is hoping for. There is there is nothing that Fox can gain from several of those matchups. And I assure you that, God forbid, the Dodgers don't advance. I will take it hard. <laughs> that sounds like a threat. I don't know what it's a threat no, of. It's not that. a threat. It's just I will need... I, I, I will need consolation, Dan. Oh, okay. And counseling. But yeah. whatever it is, we are... Alcohol, we, mostly. We at TV's Top 5 are enthusiastically rooting for the Dodgers. Go Dodgers. Yes. Batting cleanup this week, sticking with our baseball theme, it's once again our showrunner Spotlights. Number 4. In this week's showrunner Spotlight, we are talking with Kit Steinkellner. Kit is a playwright and creator of the comic series Quince, like Quinceañera. And she's the creator and now co-showrunner of Facebook Watch's Sorry for Your Loss. Sorry for Your Loss premiered last week on Facebook Watch, and it is really a terrific show. And people should be checking it out. It's, on one hand, a show about grief. It's also really funny. And for heaven's sakes, it has Elizabeth Olsen in it. Get over it. Thanks for joining us, Kit. Thank you. So, okay. Do you have a different version of the pitch for Sorry for Your Loss that you give people based on your sense of whether they're going to respond to the, oh, it's a show about a grieving widow version of the pitch? I really don't. <laughs> I feel like you want to spend time with people in pain or you you don't. I mean, <laughs> what I will say is when I talk about the show, I say every episode in its conception, I wanted every episode to be funny and moving and painful and romantic and uh, mysterious. I, I really wanted all those facets of the diamond. And so when I talk about the show, I always talk about those facets 
because look, I have never laughed harder than when I was in the hospital waiting for bad news, when I was at a funeral or awake. Those are the times I've laughed the hardest. So for me, things being intensely funny, intensely painful, intensely romantic, intensely hopeful, those don't feel like separate genres. For me, they all feel like one and the same, just feeling deeply. So when you went in to pitch this show, first of all, where did you pitch this before it landed at Facebook? But like, how did you pitch the show? Like, it's a comedy, but it's obviously has its roots in something that's horrible. It's a comedy, but then sometimes horrible. it's not a comedy. Right? But, <laughs> yeah, so, so like, walk us through what the original pitch was mm-hmm. and, and how it wound up at Facebook. Of course. So I would say it was less a pitch and more a tee-up. Uh, I had written the pilot. I had written the Bible. And I wrote the pilot because, to your earlier point, I knew the logline did not tell the story of the show. It really focuses on one dimension, the pain, the loss, that rock bottom. It doesn't encapsulate everything else the show is. So I knew I had to write the show and, and literally show on the page what it was going to be. And then I wrote a Bible that was um, you know 10 to 15 pages saying, this is what season one will be. This is what these character arcs will be in future seasons. We'll be wrestling with this stuff. So I had all that material. And then we had Lizzie Olsen. And so we went in together uh, with Robin Schwartz, our non-writing producer, and we teed up the show. We set the table. We set these, I mean, we, so essentially assuming people were going to read the pilot we were leaving behind, read the Bible, we just gave them a peek into how the show came to be, why we were so excited, just a couple of tidbits, and then we left them with materials. And it was at Showtime originally, so we did develop at Showtime. A few people raised their hands, but uh, we really got excited about Showtime, and we had a great experience developing with them. But ultimately, it was not in the stars. It was not meant to be. So we got it back. Uh, a few buyers that had raised their hands initially re-raised their hands, and Facebook had just opened its doors. It was a brand new platform. And it just, look, I had always told Robin, if we ever had the opportunity to be what transparent was to Amazon, what Orange and House of Cards was to Netflix, the opportunity to be a a pioneer on a platform was really thrilling to me. And they gave us a straight to series order. And it was not lost on me that this is the place I had learned about every death in my life in the past 10 years. Oh, I'm sorry, almost every death, every death that wasn't, you know, super in my inner circle, every birth, every wedding. It is the biggest public square in human history. At everything that is important to me thematically in our show, uh, we are wrestling, of course, with you know, literally life and death and resilience and connection and the human experience. That's the stuff that plays out on Facebook. Uh, and it, it just it just felt like the right place. And so we went for it. So when you were pitching and the people were sort of tent and the people, the networks, whatever, were tentatively raising their hands, did any of them have kind of ridiculous, we want it if dot, 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 we want it, but dot, dot, dot versions of the show that weren't the show you wanted to make? It was interesting. There was a buyer that was very high on it, but at the time, and maybe still, I'm not quite sure, only bought hours and wanted to know if it could be an hour. And at the time, I thought, no, absolutely not. This is a chamber piece. There's only so many characters. There's not, you know, this built-in story engine that's, you know, procedurally or, you know, huge and world-buildy. Like, I don't ever want this show to feel like it is outstaying its welcome. I know what the show looks like as a series of short stories, as these 25 
maybe between 28 minute episodes. I don't want it to feel bloated at 40, 45. And then we started breaking the first season. I realized how many stories I wanted to tell and, and, and how we really wanted to give, you know, Janet and Kelly and Jovan and Mama do and, and all the other characters and actors that aren't Lizzie, they're full do. And I was like, I was very wrong. We could have absolutely have done an hour. So I don't regret anything, but I certainly was wrong. We could have done an hour version of the show. Absolutely. But what, what, what network was that? I don't know if I'm allowed to say. But I mean, you can. I feel like, look, if anyone wants to play TV sleuth and, and, <laughs> and look at networks that are only buying hours that existed a couple years ago. Well, CW makes me think, so. <laughs> You're just going to start listing things. That would have been really though. interesting, though. Yeah, because, I mean, you look at a show like Jane the Virgin, obviously originally developed, I think, where, where was that? No, it was Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that was originally developed as a half Showtime. hour yeah. for Showtime, and it became an hour at CW, right? Yeah. And, it, it, it wasn't CW, but I genuinely find CW fascinating. I'm always here for a CW show. Well, now, one thing I haven't necessarily gotten a sense of, and I've now watched a bunch of Facebook watch shows, you guys, obviously, but the Catherine Zeta-Jones thing, a few others. What are the kind of parameters that they're putting on things, either in terms of content? You know, would they let you go 40 minutes if you said we need to go 40 minutes or is half an hour hard and fast, etc.? Yeah, I, I think... Look, when we have conversations, we are never talking about the other shows. When I have my, my conversations with Facebook creatively, we are only ever talking about our show. So we do like to stay in that half hour space. By the way, that just ends up being 28 minutes and ends up being our sweet spot. We got a couple of like 31, 32 minute episodes this season. And we've had cuts come in long at like 40, 42 minutes. But ultimately, when we cut it down, it's a better episode. Well, okay, first of all, there's WGA and DGA rules. I think it's 36, 38 minutes, you're no longer a half hour. And you know, you're working on a different scale. So I think just if you are a half hour show, you abide by those rules. But creatively, I've never felt this episode should have been longer and it wasn't and it hurt the episode. Um, and we have one episode this year that's, I think it was originally 25 minutes, then we got down to 22. And it's just like, that, that was the size of the episode. That's, it's, it's a really small story. I mean, it's a big story for the characters, but in terms of moves, it's a small story. And it's just, that's just, it just wanted to be a slight story. Yeah, for an, a platform like Facebook Watch, which has just obviously recently entered the scripted space, yeah. first of all, what kind of notes do they give you? Like, how does that work with them? I mean, this is not an outlet that is known for originals. And getting into that space, what was that process like? And what was their feedback? Were there constraints and things that you couldn't do, things that they wanted you to single out? Like, do you have to talk about social media or? Definitely yeah. not. No, there's never any mandate. Look, we are TV 14. And so we abide by those rules, those sort of like AMC Mad Men rules. Um, I have to go back and watch Breaking Bad because in my memory, it's not a TV 14 show, but maybe they were playing by those the same Mad Men rules. But uh, creatively, look, I think they always want us to tell the most authentic and grounded version of our story, but also, I'm sure you say that in every single podcast, there are 500 shows on the air and our stories need to be vibrant. You know, we are telling, I jokingly called our show Antigone in a cul-de-sac before, like it is, <laughs> it, is, it is life and death in Altadena, which for people that don't know is a very small, like adjacent to Pasadena, it's, it's small town Los Angeles. But at the same time, you know, we are, we are very small, but we want to be telling stories that, that feel huge. And by the way, that's not just what Facebook wants. That's what I want. That's, I think, baked into the DNA of our show is really exploring the hugeness of life on a very, and, and death and, and loss and resilience on a very small scale. So I think everything Facebook asks for creatively is what I asked for creatively when I wrote the pilot. So we're very much aligned in that respect. 
Now, when this was picked up, you were generally described as a playwright. That was sort of the way people were describing you. And before this, you'd done TV on, on Amazon, on Z. What did you learn from that experience? And what did that experience kind of teach you to show that this was the medium that you wanted to, that you wanted to be not just a playwright? Yeah. <laughs> I always wanted to be a TV writer. Look, I mean, I went to school for it. I came out. I spent all of my 20s trying to do this. So it look, it is it is easier to get a play up than to get a TV show up. That's just the nature of uh, art and commerce. But I always wanted to do this. So there definitely wasn't... Um, for me, this was, this was always the goal. And, and it's such a honor and privilege to be making TV. I will say there's at least for the past two seasons, there's always been one episode that we call the play. It was episode uh, 202 last year, which I called, it's our Eugene O'Neill play with more jokes. <laughs> and then and this year, uh, I won't say which episode it is, but it's it's early on and it's, an, it's for me, it's our August Osage. Like it really is very interior. And it's so funny because, um, you know, we'll have people asking, are we inside too much? This is very, very interior. This is very, very small. And I mean, I've got my playwright blind spot. I'm like, oh, I would happily watch people just sit in a room and talk for nine hours. Like, I, I, I went to see that production of uh, it's Gats, the elevator repair service. So they just, they just read Great Gatsby to you basically for nine hours and with a couple intermissions. So I definitely have that blind spot. I always admire uh, people that hop mediums, and I think there's something to a playwright bringing that sense of character and dialogue to TV, a screenwriter bringing that sense of, you know, scope, um, a graphic novelist similarly bringing that visual style. I, I think it's really cool when writers and creators hop mediums and bring the strength of one medium to the medium they're entering. So before you did Sorry for Your Loss, your biggest TV credit was this Amazon show, Z, The Beginning of Everything. Oh, that's my only TV credit. <laughs> um, but which was a show of, obviously, you know, this was the, during the Roy Price regime at Amazon. Yeah. It was season one aired it was renewed for season two and then backtracked and canceled yeah obviously which is a hard thing to go through especially as your first show to your point but what did you take away from that experience and and to go from that to co-show running yeah this i mean that's a pretty big leap in a short time yeah look i had amazing showrunners on z uh don press which nicole yorkin are have you had them on? Have you? We no. have not yet. Oh, well, they've got a Netflix show in the pipe, so so you should. They're, <laughs> the way they lead with such integrity and kindness and the way they trust their guts and at the same time uh, really, really believe in every single writer in their room and, and just kind of that fine, fine balance between guiding the ship and making sure everybody has ownership and is equally invested – I, I mean, that was just the greatest first experience to have with them. And uh, and I've been so lucky to, I mean, I, I co-ran the season with Aton Frankel, who I don't think it's been announced, but he's doing his show, his limited series, which is going to be amazing. And uh, I've learned so much from him and in a very similar way. He just has so many superpowers when it comes to leading and listening and collaborating. Also, just his sense of story is amazing. I, I call it his X-ray specs, the way he can he can look at a script and see exactly what's missing or needs to be fixed. So I've been really lucky in my career. It's not been, not been very long, but I've been able to work with some truly amazing writers and humans. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that through osmosis and just paying real close attention that some of it's rubbed off on me because I just admire these humans so tremendously. I mean, in this landscape where when you have a, a successful show such as yours, Usually the town comes calling with a request more. 
And we've seen a lot of these showrunners get rewarded with these eight and nine figure overall deals. And it's usually because they're going to develop more than one show and handle more than one show at a time. Is that something that's of interest to you? Like, do you want to be the, you know, have more than one show on at the same time and be juggling that? Or is it more kind of the, the Vince Gilligan approach where it's, this is my baby. This is the one thing I'm going to take care of. And then when that's over, I'm going to move to the next project. Yeah, no, it's a great question. There's so many variables to it, right? Um, For example, if we got a third season for Sorry for Your Loss, I really, on a gut level, know what I want to do with that season. And, and I'm so electrified by what that third season could be. I, I, I don't have all of it, but I really have the sense of it in a strong, powerful way. And I think as long as I'm electrified by this show and and really feel like I can contribute in a meaningful way and lead in a meaningful way, I, I want to be working on Sorry for Your Loss. Look, the reality of the schedule of it all is, you know, we start the writer's room in February. We started production this year in June. We wrapped production in mid-August. We're wrapping post right about now. It's We're getting into October. That's a lot of a year. There's still a world in which, and, and people do this, you know, I have friends that, that have a few rooms running at one time and they have a morning room and a night room, a, ro- a room that meets like three times a week. I, you know, I mean, John Wells is not my friend, but I admire him greatly. But John Wells does that with, he has rooms meet three times a week and he kind of hops from room to yeah, room. Yeah, Carlton Hughes is, told me once that he had writer's rooms that were literally set up across the street from each other in different yeah. buildings and he would spend the mornings on one show and then literally walk across the street to the second one. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, God that's, bless him because my that, brain could not work that no, way. No, that sounds kind of um, amazing. I mean, but I, when I do think of just, for example, for Sorry for Your Loss, when we were getting deep into the room and, and, and starting production, um, typically for me, I'd get up at four or five in the morning. Getting up at six was getting up late. I know. So that's the thing. The, the, idea, the idea of doing that twice over, doing that concurrently with two shows is is daunting. Look, if it was the right two shows and if I really felt like with both things, I had something really meaningful to contribute to both and I was the right person for both jobs. I mean, I'm just not, I think everyone likes to say they're ego driven, but I really am art driven. And for me, the show being as good as it can be is the most important thing. And so I don't need to have my name above the door in two places if really I know somebody who would be wonderful. I'd be happy to take a supervising role. I mean, and look, you're talking about those huge, huge deals, the the Kenyas and the Shondas and the Ryans. And to be fair, I think they, they are picking one thing to run and a lot of things to to supervise or maybe take like a um, more of a studio role. I don't know. Yeah, these these production companies are basically mini studios at this point. But look, I love being supported as, as a showrunner. I would love the opportunity to support other showrunners and find people and bring them up. That sounds thrilling to me. Uh, but no interest in developing right now? Oh, you developing other projects? Mm-hmm. Who says I'm not? <laughs> no, I am. I am. I, I definitely am developing other things. And, and, and definitely the litmus test is always, can I really contribute? Like, look, and again, you've said in the podcast before, I've said it on the podcast, even the last few minutes, there are so many shows right now. And I, I, I think of it as um, just like a giant bookshelf, right? And it's, okay, well, um, This Is Us is occupying that slot. You don't need another This Is Us. It does its job beautifully. Um, you know, I mean, I know Fleabag's over, but, like, it's going to stay in our memory for a long time. You can just look at all these shows that are really making an impact, and I don't need to cover that terrain or touch that territory. Those those shows are doing that job, but I'm always looking for those those missing slots, those holes in the zeitgeist where I feel like I could, I could contribute in a really meaningful way. And so I'm working on something right now that I, I, I think is that in the TV space, and then I have a few things in the feature space. Look, strike while the iron's hot is a, is a boring old cliche, but there is some truth to, you know, taking momentum and running with it. But there's also, I think, a real danger in um, 
working hard but not working smart and I really want to make smart choices because I love art and I love TV and I want to make stuff that's that's good and valuable. Yeah, so. I say that a lot in, in, in my job here where it's you have to work smarter, not harder because you can't possibly work any harder than you already are. Yes. Yeah. Whereas I'm exactly the opposite. I, <laughs> I attempt to work as stupidly and as hard well, as possible. That's just because that you is. watch every episode of all these broadcast shows, Dan. <laughs> you know, it's a bit... If, if, if everybody only worked smart, you know. You wouldn't have watched 10 episodes of The Island. There was only seven episodes of The Island that I well, watched. Well, you wouldn't have watched all seven episodes of a show that you know was bad from the first seven <laughs> minutes. Anyway, so you're on one of the, the fun new streaming services where we, from the outside, have no sense whatsoever of what constitutes success, what constitutes an audience, what constitutes feedback and what they're looking for. What has Facebook told you about how they're measuring anything regarding what's happening in that space? Yeah, Facebook is really unique and specific in that for them, the most important thing is community and engagement. Of course, everybody likes numbers. Everybody likes high ratings. If we could boast Game of Thrones numbers, man, everyone would be very pleased. But that really is not the end goal for Facebook. Their goal is to bring people together, and our show has done that. And Look, one of the main reasons why I wanted to be on Facebook is I knew this show, if we did our job right, we would be starting a conversation, and we did. And I couldn't have imagined the caliber of the conversation that it's happened in the comments section of the first season of our show. Look, I made this show because I, when I feel um, rock bottom, I don't want to watch reruns of Friends, uh, even though I, I, I admire it, I love it. I, I don't want to watch things be resolved in 22 minutes. Did they get 24 minutes back then? It's <laughs> in, in, in under a half hour. I, I, I want to be seen and recognized. And so I tried to make a show that spoke to my pain um, and the pain of, of the people around me. And, and I wanted people to feel seen and known and I really reading the comments of the first season I feel like not only did people feel seen and known but they found each other it was amazing how many times in the comments section someone would share a story or share their pain and someone else would write back and say hey I don't know you we live several states away several countries away but what you just said that's exactly how I feel and if you ever want to talk more to somebody who gets it I'm here there was somebody else who wrote in and said in, in the first episode of a and the pilot episode, we have two characters go to grief group. And this person said, oh, I lost a parent. I watched your show. I didn't even know grief groups were a thing, but I did what your character on the show did. I Googled grief group near me and I found this group and it's helped more than anything else. I, mean, I, I just keep seeing these things and it's meaningful. It's meaningful to make art and see a community grow around it and, and people find each other. I don't even know if I could have hoped for that. I don't even think I had the framework for that because, again, that's not what's happening on, on a Netflix or an Amazon. You don't have that community building. So that's been really meaningful to me. It's, it's, and it's just, uh, I didn't even have the framework for it. The framework did not exist. You know, Facebook as a, as a social platform has done some real good with our show, and I'm proud. Now, are you paying any attention? Because it feels like we, I mean, we just did an ATX panel a couple of months ago yeah. on grief on TV, and it feels like we really are kind of entering into... For whatever reason, people are having these conversations on TV more. You have Dead Like Me on mm -hmm. Netflix. Yeah. You have, for heaven's sakes, Walton Goggins as a grieving widow on CBS and the Unicorn. Are you paying any attention to what other people are doing in the grief space and the fact that there is a grief, a grief space? space? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's so interesting because when we were first trying to make this show a show, 
I heard so many producers and, and entities say, well, I, I love this, but I don't know if people are going to want to engage in this. I, I don't know if, if people are going to want to spend time with a fictional character's rock bottom. And I mean, a, f- a few things. I, I think, look, this is a universal issue. This is like, since we stopped being amoebas and started being aware of our own mortality, death has been a huge issue. So it, it makes sense now in um, a landscape that is asking us to tell big stories and break out of the clutter that we're, that we're wrestling with the biggest thing that can be wrestled with, arguably. Um, I would also say, I think a lot of people in the last couple of years, um, regardless of your political persuasion, um, have felt a lot of loss. Um, I, I would say the 2016 election really impacted a lot of people. And again, I, I don't even think it goes, I think, yeah, I think there's there's some political aspect to it, but I, I just think it has been a rock bottom time for a lot of people. It has been a really bleak moment for uh, Americans specifically, but I would, I would say internationally. There's, there's uh, it's, it's, it's a really hard time to be a human and to be alive. And so I think shows that are even wrestling with that pain on a smaller scale, I think there's something a little metaphory about it. As an artist, I'm always very curious about you know, what's bubbling in the zeitgeist and why are we jumping onto Game of Thrones in succession? I, I would argue it's because of what's going on geopolitically and kind of, uh, you know, us not feeling... I mean, I would, I would look back in human history. I'm like, when has anyone ever felt safe with, with global leaders? Like, this is not a new issue. But I think especially now, it feels like we're living in very precarious times. And so I think the grief space, I think, is one way of addressing that. And I would argue these Shakespearean, Game of Thronesy, succession y shows are, I think, in another way, um, wrestling with what it means to be alive in 2019. Yeah. You know, wrapping up here, one of the things that we always like to ask creators is, what are you watching? How many things do you subscribe to and pay for every month? I mean, there's so, you know, we talk, you mentioned, you know, 500 scripted shows. Yeah. There's another 700 or so, probably more closer to a thousand by this point, unscripted and docuseries and yeah. feature films. And there's so much, you know, demanding our attention in this culture. But what are you watching? Yeah. When I'm making the show, nothing. People ask what I'm watching. And I make the show. I say, oh, I'm watching my show. I'm watching nine cuts of episode 10. Um, but, uh, when I'm not making the show, now that we're winding down, I mean, look, I, ha- I have Netflix, I have Amazon Prime, I have Hulu, kind of, I-, I have those right now. I have my parents' HBO Go password, uh, <laughs> which is probably the most millennial thing I have said thus far in our conversation. But they also have my Hulu. So really, really. <laughs> I mean, I use my sister-in-law's Netflix account. So yeah, that- yeah. So we're all sharing and caring. I mean, the last show that just knocked me off my feet was undone on Amazon. My mom and I watched it together this weekend. We were at a destination wedding. And so there was like two evening events, but kind of the days where we, we had to ourselves. And so we just watched undone together and it really uh, killed me. And then I got, I got a, a lot, a lot of season twos I'm excited about. I'm very excited about succession season two, Fleabag season two, Vita season two. Uh, there's a lot of season twos I'm excited about. But uh, that's that. That's my story. But there's nothing you watch to escape from it all. Like I always use House Hunters as the example of the thing that I watch when I when I literally want to turn my brain 100 mm-hmm. off. You don't have a an escape like that. Yeah, or do you actually, God forbid, read books? That would be totally acceptable if that was the I, answer. I, and Dodger baseball for me. In yeah. fact, I do God forbid read books. Uh, my first no, my first job out of college was, was working for Book Soup on Sunset, which yeah. people live in yeah. LA know. People don't probably don't. Yeah, it's legendary. Um, but I'm yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's uh, uh, booksellers to the I think the something in infamous. I, it's been a long time since I worked there, but I, um, I love reading. And then, uh, you know, again, I, I spoke earlier about, I really do believe in, um, sharpening the knife of your brain with different mediums. And 
kind of who I can be as an audience reading a book and the way I can immerse and just, you know, spend a week with it every night. Um, also just, just to not be in front of a screen is just a, a, a lovely thing. Yeah, now, now that production's over, I think I, I read like no books between February and August. And then I read like six or seven books in the past three or four weeks. So yeah, books. Books are my Dodgers. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Our guest this week has been Kit Steinkellner. The first three episodes of the second season of Sorry for Your Loss dropped on October 1st, and new episodes premiere on Tuesdays. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks, Kit. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include Big Mouth and Raising Dion on Netflix, Batwoman, is, and as well as the rest of the CW's fall lineup, The Walking Dead on AMC, the final season of Mr. Robot on USA, which, by the way, you can keep track of all the comings and goings on series regular with Josh Wiggler, which is covering the final season in depth. And rounding it out, Primal on Adult Swim. Dan, it's a busy week. What you got? It is definitely a busy week, and it's a busy week with a lot of different things that appeal to a lot of different preferences. I am five or six episodes behind on the third season of Mr. Robot, so eventually I will probably catch up. But for now, definitely I am happy to cede the spotlight on that one to the esteemed Mr. Wiggler, who will do a tremendous job of covering a show that I personally can't invest deeply in at all. Our Walking Dead coverage will largely involve our upcoming interview with Scott Gimple, which I'm sure will be thrilling. People should be excited. But there are also a lot and of... And series regular uh, this week has Angela King, Walking Dead showrunner. Ah, Josh Wiggler is handling everything. There's stuff this week for people of all interests, and Josh Wiggler has it all covered. Josh <laughs> Wiggler. Anyway, lots of good stuff, though, this week. Uh, there are some interesting things. I would say Raising Dion on Netflix is interesting. It's kind of surprisingly young, skewing, and family-friendly. Uh, so you have to know that going in. It yeah, is... so it's about a family whose child winds up having superpowers. Exactly. And so it is not a show that is going to be your dark, brooding, new superhero favorite. So don't go in thinking that's what it's going to be. It is a family superhero show. It's occasionally heartwarming, and I thought it was cute and innocuous, uh, but my colleague Tim Goodman did not find it cute and innocuous, which I think is a viable read. It's definitely not wonderful, but I think it is appealing on its own level. If you have watched the first two seasons of Big Mouth, the third season is fantastic. I've watched only half of it so far, so not enough to write a review, but it is it's just so lewd and rude and embarrassing and ridiculous, and it is in fine form. Lots of great musical numbers and lots of wonderful things that Maya Rudolph says that sound hilarious because she pronounces words funny. She is quite brilliant at that. Batwoman is, you know, it's another one of the CW's DC um, superhero shows, and so it has some things about it that are exciting and fun. It, to me, it's not different enough necessarily to be exciting, but I will keep watching it uh, because there are things about it I like. And honestly, the sort of surprise must-watch this week is a show that like three weeks ago I don't think I'd even heard of, and I had to go through steps this week to make sure I could see it, but Primal on Adult Swim comes from uh, Gendy Tarkovsky, uh, who people will know from Samurai Jack and Clone Wars, etc. It is a dialogue-free animated show, a five-episode event about a Neanderthal and the dinosaur he bonds with. But it is, again, dialogue-free, so it's all told visually or with sound design or music and 
it's at times visually just stunning. And it's so satisfying to watch something that plays so effectively on the levels that it's going for. It, it is really impressive, really beautiful to look at, and really thrilling. The, the animated action scenes are, are very exciting. So, you know, kind of know what you're getting into when you sit down with it, because it's not, it doesn't have wacky sidekicks. It doesn't have deep, in-depth Tarantino-esque conversations, because it has no dialogue, but it's a really good show. And that may be the thing I recommend most this week, other than Big Mouth, which fans already know they should check out that's quite a surprise given the amount of, of new and returning shows that are coming up this week Dan. hey i was surprised it's it is always nice to take a few minutes to watch something that you didn't expect was necessarily going to be for you and to go okay yeah that, that's that's really good and really different and i think more than anything it's how different it is from anything else this week that really made primal which premieres on sunday night into monday i think at midnight uh yeah, it, it, one to check out. Is that uh, something that could wind up on one of your year-end lists? Unclear. There's there's a lot of contenders, but uh, I've seen four of the five installments and strong recommendation regardless of whether it's a top 10 style recommendation. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. You can subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, please rate us. It helps us move up imaginary and somewhat illusory lists uh if you really really like us write a review sometimes people like to check out reviews i noticed we got a new one last week it was very positive thank you um <laughs> and as always come say hi to us on twitter we're both there and happy to listen to your constructive comments complaints and compliments and if you have questions for future mailbag segments because we probably can't talk about baseball every week you can reach us at TB's Top 5, that's the number 5, at THR.com. And with that, until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Go Dodgers! Go Dodgers!